aside from uh, getting thrown a curveball with work today, how, <laughs> that seems awesome. Uh, how are you? I'm, as we're recording and it's on the record, I'm doing great. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I love my job. Yes. <laughs> I've asked so, for a pay reduction. You know, I'm like, you guys yeah. are paying me way too much. Way too much. Yeah, we had originally scheduled to record earlier in the day, but that's all right. Uh, you just finished with work. I literally just finished with Chinese class, and now I'm about to go into saying a bunch of Japanese words. So my brain's going to be all uh, messed up. But uh, any uh, before we get into our topic for the day, is there any news or relevant stuff we want to talk about? Well, uh we're getting some attention on Twitter from some other fellow podcasters and it's, I, I shouldn't say attention. I don't know. How, sometimes I don't know how to word things, but just getting a lot of love on uh, Twitter. And I just uh, kind of garnering now, attention. Yeah. We're garnering attention. And what I really appreciate the, about the attention is not just retweets. It's actually people like conversing and talking about things we're talking about. And like, so the conversation continues beyond the podcast and that's, that's really great. It's been, it actually makes me, uh, Actually, gives me uh, uh, makes me feel warm inside. Warm inside, nice. warm inside. Yeah. Just like we got about ah, we got about five more uh, followers on Instagram. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, they, are, and, and these are not real bots. Followers. Good, real people. Uh, qu- some of them questionable, but <laughs> yes. real people. Yes, questionable but real. Yeah, that's that's what uh, we're going for. Exactly. Otherwise, in uh, news of us, obviously, I dropped that first training video. Yep. Uh, so that's available on YouTube. Uh, you guys can look us up on YouTube, Martial Arts Mania Podcast. Uh, I'm trying to put more content out there. So I put a conditioning workout, a martial arts conditioning workout for intermediate to advanced levels that I usually do. Uh, limited equipment, obviously, it's a mostly just heavy bag. And I gave some alternatives if you don't have cardio equipment. So pretty much you can kind of do anywhere, uh, or even just take the format, even if you don't have a heavy bag and just do different exercises. So I hope people enjoy that, uh, working on some other stuff, going to try to make that a regular thing. And any new news from your side of the martial arts mania podcast, aside from the Twitter love, you know, from, from my side, of course, uh, there were a couple of things that we didn't talk about last week that I was planning on talking. I had like great jokes ready, uh, We'll see if those come up naturally this week or in one of the coming weeks. You'll you'll have to let me know when to laugh. Yeah, I will. Well, I'll, I'll like maybe send you a chat. Laugh now. Oh, and be like, ha, ha, ha. I mean, that's kind of how they're doing it now with all these uh, reality or uh, competition shows that are filming since they don't have live audiences. Yeah. But at least I like how we watch The Voice. I, I like how they acknowledge, look, we have the digital audience behind us, right? Other yeah. shows like The Masked Singer, which we also watch, they just cut to old footage of an audience. That's weird. Yeah, it's really weird. I'm like, why not just acknowledge? Because at the beginning of COVID, when they were doing like recap episodes, that's how they did it, the same thing. Look at our digital wall of people. Now they're just, (laughs) they black out behind the hopes, like the panel. So you can't really see, and then it'll cut to stock footage. And it's really weird, (laughs) really weird. uh, Wow. Stock footage. Yeah. I, I haven't I haven't heard that since like straight to video was in its heyday. Yeah, there you go. Uh, do they even do they even use stock footage anymore? Probably for openings of movies, but TV you know, shows be, I think too sometimes. But yeah, yeah, not like the old PM Entertainment film days where they used uh, to use the same chase scene from the movie Metro with Eddie Murphy. Definitely saw that <laughs> in like two different Gary Daniels movies. 
I'm like, I think that's Eddie Murphy in the passenger seat. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> so on martial arts movie news, I just read today on City on Fire that they're doing a prequel to Fury, uh, the yes. Vietnamese action movie. And uh, it's a, like a semi prequel. Uh, at first, I was very excited. Now, I'm still intrigued because Veronica No, the star who I love, she's like a modern day Michelle Yeoh, uh, not uh, trained by a martial artist by nature, but then obviously has mm-hmm. learned martial arts for cinema and become a fantastic performer just as good as anybody else out there. Hence why I compare her to Michelle Yeoh. Uh, but she's going to be directing it, not oh. starring in it as far oh. as I know yet. And it's a prequel, not about her character. Cause that's why I was intrigued. It's like, Oh, she's directing a prequel about her character. Like when she was an up and coming, like uh, enforcer. Awesome. No, it's a prequel about the bad guy from the movie, the, the, uh, the female gang boss that like uh, she you know fights what? at the end. That could be interesting. I would have could always be. loved to have seen a prequel of lady dragon. Hey, there you go. But look at it this way. Also, it's the same fight choreographer as fury. So, Okay, I'm I'm intrigued, and uh, I'm gonna keep an open mind. Uh, I have heard some rumblings about the quality of the newest Jackie Chan movie, Vanguard. Okay, uh, I'll send uh, you a chat. Ch- it's coming up naturally. Yeah, have you seen the Have you seen the poster? And it's like I've seen the poster, Rock- and yeah, we're in the, the top. Deal. Okay, please. Here's the deal. So for me, obviously, we we both grew up loving Jackie Chan. You were growing up in Japan in like the 80s and 90s where, you know, Jackie was hot, hot shit. Uh, I grew up during the time where he first came like into the American market as a success in the mid 90s. Yeah, yeah. And he was huge for me. And then I, you know, went back and watched all the classics. Huge inspiration for me. Uh, and even, you know, this newest movie, uh, my my good friend and uh, former co-worker and boss, Tomer Oz, is in it. Uh, but... I just haven't been hearing great things about it. So, but you know what? That's just other people's opinions. I have been, I have thought going into some of his more recent films that I was going to feel the same way and then ended up enjoying them more. Uh, Like I'll be a hundred percent honest. I hated Skip Trace. I thought it was terrible, but I Mm -hmm. found moments of enjoyment in Kung Fu Yoga. Yes. So, well, I, yeah. I'm going to keep an open mind, but I, all I've been hearing is like rumblings that it's not the greatest movie. Well, you know, anytime you pair Jackie Chan with Stanley Tong, it's like, it's a, it's a hint of a reemergence or not a reemergence, but like a career turn, a slight career turn for him, uh, which was sort of the case with rumble in the Bronx and super cop. And so uh, when I saw the poster for Vanguard and I saw that Stanley Tong was directing it, then in the top right corner, it's uh, from the director of Kung Fu Yoga. And I'm like, why not put from the director of Super Cop, First Strike, Rumble in the Bronx? I know those. Mr. Magoo. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. That, 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 I'm not just making that up. He directed you know, the film version of Mr. Magoo with Leslie Nielsen. Yes. Which, which yeah. was a great career turn for Leslie <laughs> Nielsen at that time. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. And there's definitely some Stanley Tong films we should cover aside from the Jackie ones, but uh, China Strike Force. I was going to say the one with Coolio. And yeah, he just now, it. Coolio aside, and I, you know, he has his moments yeah. in the movie. It's kind of enjoyable. That is a fantastic freaking movie. Mark Dacascos, yeah. But anyways, 
we we could also cover a couple of the episodes that he directed. Maybe I think it's two episodes of uh, Martial Law. Right, he directed but at least what two, I was right? Gonna, yeah, what I was going to ask you was: Did was he involved with season two? Uh, yes, he was. To as I remember, up to a point, he even directed the Yakuza episode. Got it. Uh, which is the one that you were a technical advisor on. Yeah, I loved it. I, I mean, I got to go onto the roof. I think it was at that time it was the Hilton Hotel. I forget which hotel it was in downtown. I'll get the name for you, but uh, yeah, I, I I got to see him actually direct the stuntman. I'm like, I actually don't need to be here. There's no one speaking Japanese. They're just ninjas jumping off the side of a building. But do you need them to say anything in Japanese? Yeah, but they didn't. <laughs> like we're that okay. Was, and so that's the same episode with Byron Man, right? Uh, with Heavy D. Heavy D. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Is Byron Man? He's I the forget. fake assassin. Yeah, uh, Heavy D is the one who says "Yokoso America," so welcome to America. Yeah, to to the the guy who's killed you to the fake assassin. Yes. Yeah, that's Byron Man. Yeah, cool. Okay. Uh, uh, the, uh, Ryu from Street Fighter. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I yes. should. I should. Uh, I should know these things. I had to call. That's through, all right. But that's all right. Yeah. But tell you what, let's get into our episode. Uh, what are we talking about today? Do you want to uh, let everybody? Oh, I think I think you have the honors of introducing this because this this was my first time watching the film. Okay, and good to know. I I loved it. Yes. I loved it. it. It it was it's so great. Yes. So we today are talking about the 1975 Sunny Chiba classic, Shorinji Kempo, aka its English title, The Killing Machine. <laughs> so. This is a film about the founder of the 20th century Japanese martial arts style, Furinji Kempo, whose name is uh, Doshin So, or what would be the, the proper So Doshin or Doshin So? Uh, I would just go with Doshin, but probably Doshin So, so the, is probably, yeah. Yeah, the, the Kaiso, right? The founder, Kaiso yeah. of Shorinji Kempo. Uh, and this film holds a lot of special significance for me my martial arts journey and everything. Uh, so I'm going to uh, probably be rambling a bit, talking a lot about me, but, and I just posted on Instagram today, a little like hint about it. So a lot of times uh, when people first train with me in kickboxing and stuff, you know, because I'm known for my kicks and my uh, wide arsenal of different kicking techniques, people will be like, Oh, did you used to train karate or Taekwondo? Or as I joke, sometimes people are like, Oh, Taekwondo, huh? And uh, the thing is, yes, technically the first style I started in was Taekwondo uh, in the mid-90s when I was a kid. But the, the dojo or the dojong very quickly changed from a traditional school to a very like family-friendly, glorified babysitting service. And so really, I, I could tell you, I actually wrote down. So in the, in the Instagram post, I said all of my uh, stuff came from Shurinji Kempo, which I'll get to. But in actuality, I wrote down the few techniques that I use to this day that I actually learned from that particular Taekwondo school. And that would be okay. my axe kick. That's when I did learn. Mm -hmm. And I still use uh, crescent kicks, which I've never okay. used in a sparring session ever. So uh, <laughs> back kick, but let me clarify. That's for when you kick someone standing behind you, mm -hmm. like a self-defense thing, not a spinning back kick like you would use or Don the Dragon Wilson, I guess is the only fighter to really actually use a back kick because you kind of, turn sideways like uh yeah my my pump kicks like the base because we used to do the pump knee mm -hmm. but just that uh and the one spinning kick i learned from them 
was the spinning reverse crescent, a.k.a. the Walker Texas Ranger spinning kick. <laughs> the one where it's like okay. the foot's up as opposed to this, the heel like this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then a jump spinning back kick. So those were the ones that I had learned and kept in memory from Taekwondo. So for me, I started off in that school. And then I, I went into like a, uh, a faux martial arts system that claimed to be this ancient Chinese fighting art. There's a few of those in America. It's funny how they can somehow still exist. Very uh, Cobra Kai-esque. Then I went into Wing Chun, which I always wanted to do, but uh, it was just too far away and I couldn't manage. And so mm -hmm. I took like the second half of high school off of martial arts. But during this time, as I was discovering martial arts films, I became a huge you know, fan of the Hong Kong cinema. And my first introduction to Sonny Chiba was so in order to see what martial arts movies were coming on TV, I used to check the TV guide every Sunday when it came in the newspaper for the uh -huh. next week. So the local one for my local affiliates, cable network, so forth, so forth. And I would check every week. I would go through every single movie alphabetically to see if there's any martial arts ones, Jackie Chan ones. And that's when I found Dragons Forever was playing on TBS at two in the morning on a Thursday. Wow. And so that's that how I first got to watch Dragons Forever. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't even have the capability, I think, to set the timer. Well, no, it's not that. I didn't trust the timer on the VCR. I was like, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So I just let it record for the longest play of like six to eight hours. <laughs> yeah. And little did I know, right after Dragons Forever, uh, the Street Fighter came on with Sonny Chiba. And so I was like, oh. oh, I'll give this a watch. I read about this once. This is, I am in like seventh grade at this point. So like the late nineties, uh, but it was the edited for TV version. So I get like, you know, like 15, 20 minutes into it. I'm like, this sucks. Why would, and then I don't even watch it. Maybe a year or two later. Uh, so I, we're looking at around 2001, 2002, where DVDs really took over, right? Mm -hmm. And what you started to get were these compilation packs where you get like yep. 15 or 20 movies uh, that came in one box. And so I got one with the Street Fighter. And I was like, all right, I'll give it another shot. And I watched it and I loved it. I went back to the, wherever it was, I got that, maybe Suncoast Video or Best Buy, because I saw that they had a DVD pack of all of the Street Fighter movies on one disc. Went back, got that, watched all three of them. Loved them. And I started watching every Sunny Chiba movie I could, every, all the movies from the Japanese Action Club. So Sushiomi, The Sister Street Fighter, Haruyuki Sanada, uh, Sunny Chiba. Even Yasuaki Karata was in a lot of those. So I just got hooked. And so from junior high through high school, I, I fell in love with Japanese like karate films also. Mm -hmm. And one of the movies that really I loved was this one uh, that I saw as The Killing Machine. And so that's really where uh, this the seed of uh, my interest in Shrinji Kempo was planted. And so... Uh, cause it was an early one. Cause I remember it had to have been like right at the beginning of high school. I saw this film because, uh, I just, I loved the flow of it. I like the, and the way they moved was like kickboxing and the way they absolutely stand, and their stance is like a kickboxing stance, a fist at the jaw, yeah. one fist out front, their, their embus, the paired forms they do. It's just so beautiful. I'm like, just watching them train is like watching a Kung Fu movie. And, uh, it, it, go ahead. It, it, no, no, it, it, that's one of the, the very first the very first fight in the movie that's yeah. the first thought i had I'm like this is not a rigid like western american fight movie or even like the semi-rigid japanese fight movies where there's there's a hold of the pose so you actually can see the move 
I'm all of a sudden I'm like, I'm watching something. The only thing that, uh, that that's close to this, I know we can probably talk about, talk about this actor in a later date is when I was watching the blade fight scene where he comes out of the elevator and the two people are in the hallway. So there's like a lot of fast movements and holds, holds, holds. And I, and like uh, all of a sudden, uh, so, as soon as I saw that scene, I'm like, I'm going to love this movie. I was, uh, watching it. Uh, on my phone, I stopped it, waited till I got home to to watch it on a bigger screen because it was just just that scene alone was saying this is going to have the flow of almost an eighties yes. uh, Hong Kong kung fu movie, well, which has the kickboxing. Yeah, stances. and that's what people don't they don't give the Japanese Action Club uh, the, the the stunt group uh, Sinichiba form enough credit because they innovated a techniques that were way ahead of their time, uh, but. Uh, so back real quick to my, uh, the, the backstory. So, uh, all throughout high school, like I'm fascinated with Sunny Chiba and Shirinji Kempo. I read up on it. I know all the history. So, uh, I planned on, uh, and I've mentioned, I've mentioned this before, but in the summer break between high school and going away to college where I was going to a UC, mm-hmm. I had an extra long break. I went back to the Wing Chun school. Now that I could drive myself, I was hardcore into Wing Chun. I get to UC Santa Cruz. And I think I talked about this last episode, actually, how, uh, my schedule didn't work. Uh, my school schedule didn't work with the Wing Chun school schedule in Santa Cruz. And it was only three nights a week. Cause it was like a student run thing. And mm-hmm. they weren't, and I was like, Oh, well, can I pay, you know, partial price? If I can only come one night a week, I have classes. And they're like, no, it's an all or nothing thing. And as a college student, you're like, well, F that. So, <laughs> uh, after the first quarter, I went to like the winter quarter, uh, what would you call it? Like activity fair thing. And that's why I yeah. ran to the Trinji Kempo, uh, club and i'm like whoa we because there was actually a very diverse body of martial arts at uc santa cruz and i was there it was, it was a mm-hmm. very cool uh and they were an official sub branch so in order to become an official branch of shrinji kempo you know it, it there's a lot of like documentation that goes into it like membership this and that it's a very uh formal and organized uh organization and mm-hmm. so uh which i like and, but they were one of the rare official sub branches that was based out of the San Jose branch. So we weren't a, a technically, uh, like for example, my instructor, Ruta, uh, who was originally from Japan, uh, moved to America when he was like 12. He, I guess he wasn't my sensei. He would be like a senpai, right? But mm-hmm. he was my sensei, right? And so, and I was like, Shirinji Kempo, hell yeah, I love Shirinji Kempo. You guys ever seen The Killing Machine? And he would laugh and he's like, oh my God, yeah, of course. Uh, but then I, that was my martial arts style I did for three years. And so that's why it's really the base of my martial art technique. Like when I first got into Muay Thai and kickboxing, I was still doing Shrinji Kempo and like, you know, I, I attribute a lot of my foundation to Shrinji Kempo still. And like, so that's why when people say, oh, karate or Taekwondo, they'll really know my base art, traditional art is Shrinji Kempo. And even like some things to this day, some of the techniques like my, uh, what would be Mawashigeri, right? The, the roundhouse kick to the head. So mm-hmm. uh, what, what Mawashigeri is the kick? What would it be to the head? It would be Jun Mawashigeri? It could be. You, yeah. You'll be more familiar with that. Yeah. So either which way, <laughs> like the snappy lead roundhouse kick I got from Shrinji Kempo. Yeah. Kind of, and even like a lot of the blocking and movement because I heard it best described once as karate techniques on a Kung Fu framework. You could definitely sense, see that. Right. Yeah. You can yeah. definitely see so, that. Uh, and uh, really 
Shrinji Kempo is divided into two different uh, parts when it comes to the uh, martial application. There's the Goho technique, which would be hard, mm-hmm. and Juho, which would be soft, which is like the jiu-jitsu, uh, the, the standing uh, gyakuwaza, uh, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, there, there's no real niwaza on the ground, like the, the ground fighting, but the standing grappling. So mm-hmm. as a real quick backstory for everyone, like the history of Shirinji Kempo, which it's, it, it, there's some documented stuff, some stuff's up for debate. Uh, I, I question some of the history, but I do not question the legitimacy. So <laughs> I'm just more curious where some of this stuff came from because it's, it's way too good of a system uh, to, to not have a real authentic background, but I sometimes wonder what other styles were thrown in there. But pretty much, uh, Sodoshin was born Nakano Michiomi uh, in 1911. Uh, when he was eight years old, he was sent to Manchuria to live with his paternal grandfather because his dad had died from alcoholism. Uh, his grandpa was a member of the Black Dragon Society, which was a very right-wing group. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, his grandpa was an expert in kendo, uh, kendo. Uh, obviously the, the sword fighting, uh, so jutsu, the spear fighting and a, a form of jujitsu that was most likely Fusen Ryo jujitsu. So like traditional Japanese jujitsu, these, the arts that would be the basis for judo that would then be the mm-hmm. basis for Brazilian jujitsu and so forth. Uh, and then, so he trained with his grandfather for years, who is an expert, uh, or master in those styles. Then, uh, eventually his grandfather passes away. He's uh, back in Manchuria. Uh, and then in 1928, he's now working for the Japanese government. He's kind of like a spy, supposedly. Uh, he makes maps of the Chinese countryside. Because for people that for, may not know, I, I kind of skipped over this, Manchuria uh, at this time, when it was called uh, Manchukuo, was a puppet state of the Empire of Japan. Yep. So pretty much they had like their own government, but really were controlled by Japan. And so... Uh, the ethnic makeup of this was native Manchurians, which were, uh, you know, belonged to China, uh, which were like 90 something percent. And then like half a million Koreans, which was only like 2%. Uh-huh. And then Japanese, uh, Mongolians, et cetera, et cetera. So he was working as like a spy for the Japanese government. And in 1928, he, uh, as part of his cover and stuff, he starts uh, training at a Taoist school with a master named Chen Lian, who is his first instructor in Chinese martial arts, or as the, the story with Shrinji Kempo is they constantly, they call it Chen Fa, Chen Fa, which literally means fist method in Chinese, what we know like as Kung Fu or Kung Fu or Wushu, but Chen Fa. The, uh, and the style he learned is Bai Lian Chen or Bai Lian Man Chen. So the, the white lotus fist or the white lotus gate fist. And mm-hmm. so that's the first system he learned. Now, right off the gate, I've tried to do research to watch like White Lotus Kung Fu, and there isn't a whole lot. There's some videos, so I'm not sure. Uh, and then after that, uh, his master Chen introduces him to another master named uh, Wen Taizong, and who's a master of Yihe Chen, uh, or as it's usually translated, translated the Righteous Harmonious Fist. Really, like if you translate it character by character, it's kind of like Justice Gentle Fist. That, mm-hmm. that sounds a lot nicer though. And so that system I've never been able to find like anything on. And supposedly in 1936 at the Shaolin temple, Mount Shang Shaolin temple, uh, his master Wen passes on to him the title of grand master of the style. 
so that would mean he had been training in Chinese martial arts at that point, about eight years total. You know, he'd been doing Japanese jujitsu at this point for like, you know, uh, 25 years. Uh, shortly thereafter, Japan. Uh, so that's 1936, obviously. And then, so that's 1936. So he probably kept studying supposedly for almost another 10 years, nine years. Mm -hmm. uh, that brings us to the end of World War II. Uh, the Soviets invade Manchuria. The aftermath is terrible. Tons of Japanese are killed, commit suicide. They lose the war, obviously. He manages to repatriate back to Japan uh, through his Chinese connections. And he sees the state of that Japan is in, that the Japanese people are in, decides to form a martial arts system based off of everything he's uh, learned. He uh, And he incorporates Zen Buddhism because he finds that's very important. And obviously calls it Shorinji Kenpo, which in Japanese is Shaolin fist or fighting style, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's also an official religion. So the Zen is, it's not just a little part of it. It is in Japan, an official religion, martial arts practice. Uh, so then in 1979, he actually went, goes back to Shaolin Temple to visit. And they had asked him to come back supposedly and reteach the Chinese uh, Shaolin methods that he had wow. learned that had been lost. Uh, however, he never got the chance because he passed away in 1980. Two interesting things to note about this. So Don Drager, the uh, American martial artist that lived in Japan for many, many years, traveled China, one of the foremost experts on martial arts in the 20th century. He disputes a lot of these claims. He's like, oh, they would, the Chinese would have never passed a title onto him like this. And then, and then, and, you know, he may have some valid points, but at the same time, uh, my theory is that he definitely learned these systems of Chinese martial arts, mastered them, whether they were actually Shaolin or whether the going to the Shaolin temple had any real effect on it. His master could have just been like, hey, let's go to Shaolin. I'm going to pass my title on to you there. You know what I mean? And so, but the interesting part is his visit to Shaolin temple Mm -hmm. My version of Jet Li's Shaolin Temple, the DVD I had as a kid, has that uh, visit at the beginning of the film. You're watching it. Really? Doshin So has a very unique look towards the end of his life. He has this long-ass goatee with a shaved head. And so I'm like, huh, that looks like the Shrinji Kempo guy when I first saw it. And on top of that, when you watch Shaolin Temple with Jet Li, there is a Shirinji Kempo fighter in the film during the finale when they're invading the temple. There's mm -hmm. a uh, an actual Shirinji Kempo guy who's there and you see him because he does his block and he does the movements. And I remember seeing it as a kid because I had already had exposure to Shirinji Kempo at that point. I was like, wait a minute, that's like Shirinji Kempo. And sure enough, I asked my instructor years later and he's like, yeah, they, they invited the, him over there. They sent this guy and he was in the movie. So, uh, I mean, the thing is, I know I've been rambling and I apologize. We'll get to the movie here shortly, uh, but keep going. The, the system itself, it's too effective and it's too uh, structured and organized to, to not have this authentic background. But I, cause obviously the jujitsu makes sense, right? Because, uh, and the jujitsu techniques are all the standing locks, pins, throws, mm -hmm. uh, pressure points, pinning them on the ground, not the Niwaza like ground submissions, but like, you know, uh, more like what tactical kind of police or Hapkido looking submissions on the ground where you like yeah. pin your arm down and hold them. Uh, so that all makes sense. His background from his grandpa. Okay. 
Now, the striking aspects of it, uh, the fluidity of the movements, obviously, okay, Chinese martial arts makes perfect sense. It's not just linear like karate was. It's circular, it's movement, side to side. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the thing that, like, so I, I, I theorize that, first of all, he had to have learned some sort of karate because the kicks in Shirinji Kempo uh, are much more like Japanese style. That being said, he could have also had exposure to Korean martial arts while in Manchuria. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the Koreans were actually, uh, not only would there have been a, a large body of Koreans, over uh, half a million, they also had their own part of the Japanese military later on. That was one of the few uh, non-Japanese groups that they actually gave praise to for their martial spirit. So, I mean, he could have been exposed to either karate kicking techniques, Korean kicking techniques. Okay. Uh, but even the stance, as I said, it looks like a Western boxing stance. It's yeah. one chin close to the jaw, one hand out front, a little bit lower than most uh, boxing stances would be. But still, it's fists. It's closed fists. And the punches, like when you do the katas of Shirinji Kempo, you come forward. It's like a jab. Then you throw a right cross, like Western style. Then you go into a hook. That's literally a one, two, three, with the other hand up protecting, which isn't Chinese style. It also isn't Japanese style. So that's why I wonder if he also had exposure to Western boxing, which would have made sense uh, with perhaps uh, Soviet activity going on in Manchuria, because uh, they were considered like the sixth ethnic minority uh, while there, or, you know, possibly even the tail end of him formalizing the system when he went back to Japan and obviously America had come in, it could have been from American GIs because the system yeah. was founded in 1947. So it could have been, you know, he had a couple of years there, like, you know, he may have had the kicks. Okay. He could have learned Western boxing. Uh, I mean, we they've talked about, I think how Masayama uh, practiced fighting against American GIs and stuff. Right. Yeah. And as this movie would uh, implicate, Maybe Doshin So did the same. So, really, I mean, the I, I, I'd be fascinated to get in a time machine and go back and see what it was. Was it purely he combined jujitsu with Shaolin martial arts? Was it just jujitsu with the the multiple styles of Chinese kung fu? You know, where did the hand system come from? But either which way, that's my connection to Shirinji Kempo. My background, Shirinji Kempo. Uh, I was preparing to test for my black belt when I decided to leave and just dedicate myself to kickboxing. I'd love to go back and train again. I love the camaraderie of the system. We were like a family. We'd go out to eat and hang out afterwards. It was awesome. But now that we've given that background on Shirinji Kempo and Doshin So, this film is The Killing Machine, the English title, or Shirinji Kempo, uh, is kind of an exploitive biographical film. But I really mm-hmm. like how at the beginning of the movie, unlike biography films from America for the last who knows how long, only up until recently had things switched from based off a true story to inspired by true events, right? This one straight up says at the beginning, look, there's some real people in this, but it doesn't mean that this is the real story. Uh, Like it's like this little inner title that pops up and then we get this kind of exploitive story about him his, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it starts off at the end of World War II, showing him as a spy, going back to Japan, seeing Japan uh, defeated, the spirit lost, and him wanting to help people, how, uh, you know, to raise the spirits, to help the youth, to give them something to gain back their confidence. And he decides to do that, combining Zen Buddhism with his martial arts mastery. And yeah, so 
you you go ahead and take over for a bit. What did you think about this movie? <laughs> okay. Well, first off, like I like I like I already stated, like as soon as I saw the first fight scene, I was I had to put it off, take it off my phone, and wait wait for a bigger screen to watch it. Uh, the flow. I mean, we can get into the talk about the flow of the fights uh, in a little bit. I just found that uh, it combined a lot of great elements of Japanese cinema of that time uh, of the of the seventies. You've you've got like the melodramatic soap opera that is is melodramatic, but it's not hitting you over the head with it. Uh, there's just something really special uh, about the the soap opera films that were coming out or the soapbox films. Uh, I think my my old boss, uh, we once aired one of these uh, films at at uh, Japanese American Culture and Community Center, and uh, he basically told the audience. Uh, in Japan, sometimes you'll be warned before a movie or film critics might tell you that this is a, a, a three, like a three uh, packet because they would have these small packets of tissues or Kleenex, a three packet uh, yeah. movie. So then he like had on each, uh, by each seat, we had all these uh, boxes of Kleenex because they, we anticipated that the audience would be crying. So it has that melodramatic aspect and that uh, just pulls an audience in. And then it's, it, the pacing of the fights, uh, it's not just that fights are thrown in. Uh, they all advance the story, but the pacing of where the fights fit in amongst the drama is really fantastic. And then there's always this message, which is sort of a slightly right-wing message. Uh, uh, like you had mentioned the Black Dragon Society. I, as I was yeah. watching it, like some of the lines he was saying, it's like, this is Yukio Mishima, who uh, I'm going to say, I'm gonna, I might get the year wrong, but between the late 60s and early 70s, I think it was 71 or 72, Yukio Mishima, you know, committed Harakiri uh, as a way of, as a culmination of his trying to get the nation to become a little more prideful and honoring the, the emperor again. And I bet as a really simplified version of Yukio Mishima's life, uh, if anyone's interested in Yukio Mishima a little more, I would definitely get into his uh, his uh, sort of essay short book that he wrote, Sun and Steel, and then that that that's definitely a better take uh, his words rather than my uh, paraphrasing of his entire life uh, as a juxtaposition against this well, film. The the thing so about this, and I, I think you know because I'm very much into the karate films, but I am just now kind of getting myself into proper Japanese cinema and just falling in love with it. But yeah. the thing about this film, extremely nationalistic. Yes. But what I like is, is it's not uh, xenophobic in a sense. It's not anti anybody else. Unlike right. certain propaganda films from any country. And even nowadays, <laughs> yeah. still, or I mean, I think Chinese cinema has a, a lot of that going on uh, right now, even uh, of and just like America has in the past extensively too, but uh, it's, it's, it, it's 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 pro Japan, but it's not like because for example, yes, there there's a few bad American GIs, but they don't really go into that element that much. In fact, most of the corruption he it's shown in the film is from within Japanese society. Yes, and so he, it, it, he, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, no, you go. Okay, so and pretty much he like there's a couple of bad American GIs takes care of them, but it, there's no like, Oh, the Americans are bad or evil, blah, blah. No. And it's a, you know, very quick snippet. There's uh, like a couple of bad Koreans in one scene. He kind of beats them up temporarily. and tells them, Hey, 
if you want to live here and we're all going to get along, you should be nice pretty much. But yeah. the bad guys of the film, the true bad guys are all like Japanese gangsters. Like yeah. it, I think it's trying to show the corruption that was found within Japanese society uh, yes. post-World War II, uh, a sense of defeat. Uh, and then so so there's that that corrupt part. Then there's the part of the good Japanese that feel defeated and see kind of this Western influence coming in and taking over. So I guess that can be looked at as slightly negative, but there's not too much played on that as much as there is the power of the individual and to be able mm-hmm. to better yourself through martial practice, Zen Buddhism. And the thing is like, he also gives everybody a second chance, sometimes too much. Yeah. Well, no, it, uh, so what I liked about uh, his message is that you, you hit the, you hit the nail on the head where you're, he's essentially pointing out the, the corrupt, uh, his corrupt, like uh, the corrupted spirit, even right. even when it was the girl, like after you know her ordeal, uh, of being in brothels and being subjected to what she was subjected to, uh, her him telling her, "You are still pure, you know. You do not need this, you know. You're." And I think on the train as well, he talked to the other Japanese people who were on the train. At that that was shortly after he had beaten up the the, the Koreans on the train, yeah. where he basically tell them, you know, it's okay to have pride. It's okay to be Japanese and prideful. And he was, ba- it's basically trying to get Japanese to stop being defeated. Well, as, a, as a note, we both watched the Japanese version, right? Yes. Yeah. Cause as a kid, I obviously only had the English dub. I recently purchased the uh, remastered Sunny Chiba collection version, which only has the Japanese one. And, you know, as someone that speaks Japanese and I don't, but the subtitles, it says, so when he when he stops the Koreans on the train, he beats them up when they're trying to rob the people. He first says to the Japanese citizens, like, you guys should have pride in yourselves. You should have thrown them off the train and stood up for yourselves. Yes. Then immediately he turns to the Koreans and is like, and you guys, you need to be good. There's like, a, you know, millions of us and a very small amount of you. So if you want to live in our society, you ought to be respectful in this and that. So he's like, he's playing two different complete scenarios, but he's telling everyone like, look, it's the responsibility of the individual, you know, in society, we can all get along. And I kind of like that message, but, uh, uh, yeah. And as I said, he gives everybody multiple chances, sometimes too many, uh, Jessica was watching it partially with me. And at some points I was like, yeah, you know, uh, she's like, well, what's going on here? I was like, well, this is like their third chance. He's giving these gangsters, maybe the fourth. So they got to die. Like yeah. he doesn't just, it's not like this, the street fighter character who just kills right off the bat. He's like, he gives them plenty of chances and it's almost like, look, I don't want to do this, but it's time for you to die. Yeah. <laughs> or look, yeah, like you, you left like me the no choice. The- I'm going to cut off your balls. Yeah. And we should mention that like the street yes. fighter, there's a castration scene in this film, but, yeah. but he had already stopped this guy from attempting to rape this same girl, gives him yeah. a warning. The guy goes back and still does it. So yeah. they hold him down, chop off his balls with a pair of scissors, or I don't know what they chop off. We don't really see. And then they yeah. throw it to a dog and it eats it. Yeah. I was just going to say the audience doesn't have to worry too much because you don't really see too much because the yeah. dog clears the scene for us. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, the gangsters still don't get the idea because then they go after his student and they chop off his student's arm. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, in the West, we have the expression, an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. But I'm pretty sure in Japan, it's, uh, eh, what is, how does it go? It's uh, an arm 
for a schlong and the whole world goes, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I thought you were going somewhere. No, I was, I was making that up, but, uh, I know. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah. So, uh, you don't really have to worry about seeing too much in that scene, but Really, the story, like, I guess we, we, we haven't really talked much about the story, but it, it's pretty basic. As I said, starts off in the war. He comes back. Uh, he's kind of, he's in Osaka. Uh, he fights off the gangsters. He's pretty much forced to flee. He moves. He founds the Shirinji Kempo martial arts style and temple, helps the people. Uh, there's these characters that keep reoccurring, his friends and comrades who he helps out and or avenges. Uh, we have lots of fight scenes throughout, uh, big finale, and then yeah. So from a uh, you, from a technical standpoint, and you had kind of mentioned this earlier, but I wanted to mention how even the uh, not as serious films or the quicker rush or kind of campier movies of Japanese martial arts cinema were all of very high quality, especially in comparison to uh, a lot of the Hong Kong ones coming out. So you look at the Shaw brothers ones. Yes. All very high quality. Chang Chu, the Lock Ar Long films, but there was also a period in the seventies where especially post Bruce Lee, they were just churning out cheapo yeah. martial arts movies like crazy. Cause they were cheap to make, made a lot of money, big return overseas and so forth. And I think the only reason why these Japanese ones are of so much higher quality than all, most of those, especially kind of the post golden era of Shaw and so forth is simply because there wasn't as many of them being turned out. Yeah. Like how many karate movies of Japanese cinema of like the seventies and eighties are there that have no affiliation with the Japanese action club or Toei cinema? I know. Yeah. Toei is another great one. I I think, so as I understand it with Japanese cinema, there was, uh, I think around in the sixties, that's one or sixties or seventies. That's when funding started to really dry up for a lot of the big uh, directors. So I think, uh, Kurosawa's like last big Japanese fully funded Japanese film was Redbeard. Uh, okay. And then after, after that, I think he did Dodeska Den and he got, he was trying to create a new uh, film company. So he and three other film directors, I'm, I'm just going off the top of my head now. So I, I shouldn't be able to name them decided to work together to each produce a movie for each one of them. Uh, Dodeska Den, uh, I don't think was as financial success as they wanted. So therefore, uh, I think that partnership dissolved. And okay. after that, he did Dersu Uzala, which I think was somewhere in the 70s, and that was funded by the Soviets. So he shot a movie oh. in the Soviet. And then, and then was it Kagemusha and Ran, or Ran and Kagemusha? But either way, uh, one was funded by French cinema, and then one was funded by uh, Coppola. And I, I don't think, I think even Dreams was funded partially by Coppola, or maybe that was finally back to full Japanese funding. So a lot of the funding that was going to the biggest Japanese directors, and obviously I'm just to suggest Kurosawa, had dried up. And a lot of the funding started going to, uh, to commercials, television, and smaller directors. Not to, not to say that any of the directors of these films in the 70s were smaller because there was great Japanese cinema, particularly from Shohei Imamura. You'll find some fantastic films from him. And then Hideo Gosha, which I think uh, you and I should do a Hideo Gosha film sometime because his action on top of it. So he'll have like a three-hour melodrama with some of the most, uh-huh. some of the goriest action that is gory, but beautiful. Uh, uh, so anyway, I've fallen 
I've gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but you can definitely see the funding change and the commitment of the, of the, of the studios in Japan to fund differently. And I think that was able to spread money out to the films, like these, these uh, action films that we like today's like the killing machine. Yeah. Plus when you look at even the history of, okay, Japanese cinema as compared to Chinese cinema, uh, Chinese is going to be a little more all over, all over the place because you had mainland Chinese cinema, Hong Kong cinema. I mean, it, in the early advent of film, uh, Shanghai was the main production hub. And then uh, the tumultuous events of the 20th century, then obviously a lot of filmmakers fled to Hong Kong. Then you had Hong Kong cinema, but then you still had uh, underground like propaganda films going on in the mainland. Mm-hmm. And then World War II ends. Then you've got the communist takeover. Then you have a lot of filmmakers that fled to Hong Kong. Bob. It's kind of all over the place. It was uh, you know, kind of harder to find their footing, I think. So maybe Japanese cinema had more of a chance to just develop uh, yeah. its own style. But even the influence of Japanese cinema could be felt in these higher quality Hong Kong ones that we were even getting starting in the 60s when, you know, uh, Shaw Brothers really uh, began to boom. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that they brought over foreign technical... Uh, yes, people to work on these films. Now they would never allow them to direct at the beginning. But for example, uh, one of the big cinematographers that was borrowed from Japan during the sixties was uh, Tadashi uh, Nishimoto, who was the Mm -hmm. one that Bruce Lee specifically requested for way of the dragon. And uh, even like, you know, the, the influence that the Zatoichi films had. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's, you know, why the, these, the influence of Japanese martial arts cinema is very underrated. And uh, so now we've kind of gone over that. Uh, I know we're all over the place. It's just so much to to talk about. Well, we're still getting the rust off. And I think, uh, yeah, but but on top of that, like there's a lot of meat here. Oh yeah. There's a lot of meat film as well. So, yeah. So let's get specifically to talking about the fight scenes. Now the fight scenes that Sonny Chiba, uh, whose martial arts background was, uh, you know, he was a world-class gymnast, was training, uh, he was going to sports college, was training for uh, gymnastics for the Japanese Olympic team, hurt his back, then switched over to martial arts. He started training uh, with Masoyama in the mm-hmm. late to mid-50s uh, before, like, he had become this worldwide figure even, and earned his uh, black belt uh, in the mid-60s and that. He supposedly also had black belts in judo, ninjutsu, and shirinji kempo, which I think is... Uh, visible when you watch his performance of the style. He's not just a talented martial artist. You're like, oh, this guy can do the system. Uh, so the, the fight scenes that Sonny Chiba helped create in the 70s, starting with uh, uh, his first real martial arts film was uh, The Bodyguard, right? That was what it was called. And then mm-hmm. he did The Street Fighter. And when you watch the first Street Fighter movie, those fight scenes were way ahead of their time. Just in the hard-hitting nature, the kind of raw athleticism that I feel like we you would we kind of enjoy from our 80s and 90s American martial arts movies, but yeah. done with a much higher technical level of martial arts. Because even Sonny Chiba, when you watch him, his skills are amazing, but it's not as clean aesthetically as like some of the Taekwondo kickers, right? Yeah. Or like a Huang Jing Li. No. But when he moves and he attacks, you see the the authenticity of his moves and exactly. the theory and his kicks, like his spinning wheel kicks and stuff. You're like, that's powerful. <laughs> I mean, there's a slight bend in his leg here, but you know, uh, and obviously his, uh, like jujitsu and judo and that kind of stuff, the throws, the grappling, uh, is all very high quality. And even the way they, they choreograph 
they edit the pacing of the fight scenes, uh, the wham, bam, bam. It was almost ahead of Hong Kong in that sense of what would, like you mentioned earlier, kind of what would become that kickboxing style of the eighties that we love. Uh, and there was other certain technical innovations that the Japanese action club, I think was really like, you know, uh, some of the first to do, for example, the shaky camera work. Now I'm not mm-hmm. a big fan of the modern shaky camera work, but the way they were experimenting within the seventies was it was handheld. And so it was shaky enough. It actually sometimes works brilliantly. Sometimes it's just, okay, it's bearable, but, uh, they, so I guess I should say they succeeded at doing it. And some other things that they were really big on the use of slow motion, like, yes, yeah. I know, uh, uh, Changche or Changche did slow motion in his Shaw brother films. Uh, but a lot of times, even when you watch those slow motion, it's like, because the martial arts technique weren't authentic, the performers weren't real martial artists. It does not work here. The slow motion is incredible. Like, especially when they do a lot of the Aiki jujitsu techniques where he's throwing someone, yep. they use like uh, what's it called? Like an axial cut. And this is another technique they do where they would jump forward without changing the frame to mm-hmm. accentuate the action. And they would go from, full speed to slow motion to show the throws, to show the actual like uh, technique. But most of the time it's done with uh, locks or throws. So, you know, it looks beautiful because you don't have to fake. It's not like you're faking a hit. And uh, some very innovative uh, camera angles, quite often it's actually the camera will be tilted for like no reason, Mm -hmm. but it works. And it's like, it kind of adds to that kinetic energy of the fight and the chaos of what a real fight might be like there's some very uh innovative you know like uh bird's nest views like when yep. they, there's the one shot movie i know when they do the throw so they cut from full yes. speed to slow speed then they cut to even closer on the slow speed and he punches the guy in the head as he's being <laughs> i knew exactly yeah. when your hand went through the yeah yep. i knew exactly the scene you were talking about and it works and, it was such a good uh, scene. I, I, I watched the scene and then I rewound and watched that scene again. Yeah. It, I mean, and the one other technique that they were the first ones I ever saw do, like some of the shaky camera work uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service and some of the Bond films had done that previously yeah. in the 60s. Uh, slightly different though, but so that's why I, I can't say that the Japanese Action Club was the very first to do that. But one of the things that they were the very first ones to do and uh, you, you'll see this in the film Shogun's Ninja, which is another favorite of mine, which mm-hmm. uh, was directed by the same director, actually, uh, Norabumi, uh, Norabumi Suzuki. Uh, and it is a, a period set film. What do you call like the Japanese period set ones where it's oh, like... Jidai Geki? Thank you. Yes. Uh, but has a lot of kind of modern martial arts stuff. Anyways, they, they do the regular speed slow motion, fast speed, the, the same technique that was used in brotherhood of the wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just can't describe it, but it's like, uh, for example, that film and the first one you really see him utilize it in is, uh, uh, karate warriors, which is like a Yojimbo remake starring Sonny Chiba set in modern times. So it's like, mm-hmm. he starts the kick. It slows down in the same. So the shot stays the same. <laughs> we'll say this yes. is the kick full speed, slow, then speed again like a Mm -hmm. rapid fire speed and it's this really cool technique they're the first ones i ever saw do that so really they were so innovative in a lot of the stuff they did and you see a lot of that in this movie and the nice part about this movie is it is of 
it's like a real melodrama film. In fact, rewatching yes. it, I I didn't realize as a kid, I just loved it because of all the fights and stuff. I was like, damn, this is actually like a, a real well thought out made movie. It, it I, I actually kind of put it on par with, uh, with some of the great Westerns that we saw post-war in America, yeah. uh, because it, it, there, there is, it really kind of die, like dives into, uh, what it was like to be in, in, to live in a post-war society. And I know the Westerns themselves didn't necessarily address that, but like this James Stewart, Anthony Mann movies definitely brought some post-war feel pre, you know, set as a Jedi geeky. Uh, Western, and I, yeah, I definitely felt that. I mean, there's there's sort of a moral to the tale. There's a little bit of a uh, a Shane feel to this, a, a John yeah. Ford, Anthony Mann feel to this movie, and I I really liked that. And I mean, there there used to always be this uh, going back and forth of uh, of sharing between um, of sto- not storyline sharing, but I mean, you mentioned Yojimbo, and I mean, I know we know that that's been made into American movies and vice versa, but. There uh, and kind of goes back and forth, but you definitely get that with this film. That there, there is, uh, it's almost like the sh- uh, the fighting style. You definitely see the Chinese influence, you see the Western influence, and you see the Japanese influence. It's it's sort of this is sort of what happens when uh, cultures intermingle and kind of come up with with a great storyline, and they intermingle in, in a great way. Yeah, I agree. And I don't, I don't know if what I just said made sense. No, it makes a lot of but, sense. And uh, when uh, sorry, I'm getting the you, air fryer, the oh, air fryer. You should, you should have been saying after you're like diffusing a bomb or something. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, that's what it sounds like. Uh, yeah. So w- when you look at, because he did a whole series of biographical films of his real life instructors. So he did mm-hmm. this one. He did the three films about Masoyama, highly mm-hmm. fictionalized. In fact, I believe they were actually based off a manga based off of Masayama. <laughs> of course. He did one, uh, Power of Aikido. So all of these films because uh, are of that that real cinematic quality, right? Of like real Japanese art house kind of cinema. Whereas some of his other movies, like for example, the first Street Fighter movie on that same part. The second movie, mm-hmm. quality-wise, it's still, but like goes into the much more campy nature. The first yeah. one had it too. By the third one, it's gone kind of more of that I hate to use the, like, kind of that, uh, we'll just say campy feel. Uh, and I wonder what you were going to, what word were you going to use? I don't like, know. I was going to say chop sake, but that's not right. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, but like also, buff- buffoonery, really. Buffoonery. But, and then yeah. some of his other martial arts ones, like the executioner was much more of that slapstick type feel. Uh, yeah. but all of the biographical ones were a very like stellar quality. Uh, I need to go back and I have the second of the Masayama films, but I need to go back and get the first and third one again and rewatch them because I haven't seen them in like 15 years. Uh, but I, I feel uh, we'll, we'll try to wrap this up, but I feel if what people need to do, especially martial arts film fans, so many have never been exposed to Sonny Chiba or they've maybe seen the street fighter and that's it. You've got yeah. to give these other movies a chance because they're so unique. There's such a different style of fight scenes. Now we say we were kind of comparing to the kickboxing films of uh, Hong Kong eighties films, uh, but they're completely different. You know, it's a very unique look, a very unique feel. Uh, You know, this is, this is where obviously, I mean, Sonny Chiba was the star, but it's also where Haruyuki Sonata started uh, as in Henry Sonata, who did some Hong Kong films. Uh, As I said, Yasuaki Karada popped up in a few of these. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and Sushiomi, Sister Street Fighter, one mm-hmm. of the, it, it, this is going to be controversial for, I think, but of, I prefer Sushiomi over Angela Mao. I said it. Uh, Whoa. It's not a question for me. Sister Street Fighter, she is the OG, in my opinion, she is, she is the original prototype of the female martial arts star. Uh, mm-hmm. Better than, and I love Angela Mao, but she's better than Angela Mao, yeah. you know, better than Cheng Pei Pei. Uh, she was, you know, part of the Japanese Action Club. Uh, obviously, Shirinji Kempo is actually her main style. She's in yeah. this movie. She's the sister yeah. of the guy yeah. who gets his arm chopped off. Well, that, that, that fight scene, that fight scene with her is yeah. phenomenal, where she yeah. and her brother are fighting. I mean, they're just moving back and forth. It is right. something. It is you could if if you can't get your hands on this film if you go back and just watch a few fights from it just to get a taste of it that's one of the fights that i would definitely recommend and by the way the english dub version is easily available on the internet so you can watch yes. it there but uh yeah and all of her film like in uh the two interesting things about her she almost always used shirinji kempo in the whole sister street fighter series which is three official movies one unofficial movie uh this film uh when she popped up in street fighters last revenge as a different character uh she's kind of using a it's either Shirinji Kempo or she's playing like Chinese ethnic characters doing Chinese martial arts. Cause even her sister street fighter character is supposed to be half Chinese. And then yeah. in uh, Shogun's Ninja, she's a Chinese character, but I digress. But uh, anyways, lots of fight scenes in this movie, not as many long extended ones, but a ton of short little bursts and maybe yeah. two or three longer ones. The opening sequence is incredible, uh, short and sweet. And then the finale is really good. Uh, any final notes? Um, I would say if anybody is interested in uh, the Manchuku Manchuria uh, period, a great trilogy film to see is The Human Condition. It uh, stars Nakadai Tatsuya. Nakadai Tatsuya, yeah. Uh, Tetsuya. Dang it. But anyway, uh, but anyway, don't worry about the one of the greatest actors of all time. Uh, Nah, I've lost. I've lost you. I've lost the audience. They've okay. stopped. Just, just check out that film series because it really digs deep into the Manchurian experience uh, in an extremely fair way. I think you have to either put aside six hours or nine hours. It's a three-part series. Each movie is two to three hours. Uh, highly recommend it, but you've got to put some time aside. And by the time you merge on the other side, uh, it's hard not to be moved by what the Chinese experienced what uh the japanese experienced what the russians experienced it just is grueling so this this one this film it opens up and it just touches on it a little bit and that's there's just so much meat in what happened in manchuria and manchuku it's a beautiful trilogy to go out and get your hands on uh and watch it over time uh my final thoughts on this film uh it's basically Real what quick, you said not to cut you off yeah. also another oh, great please. movie the good the bad and the weird oh Absolutely. Also, that's phenomenal. Material. Anyways, okay, yeah, you, final note. That's a fun, So my final note about this film is a lot of people's Sonny Chiba experience is his campy because the campy is easier to get your hands on over here. This is really uh, just a nice, serious piece of great, I, th- I think, great filmmaking, great cinema. And I lost myself in this movie. And I... I you know, I watch a lot of movies on my phone. I watch a lot of movies streaming, but just needing to stop it and go back and watch it on the big screen, that that's that's the caliber of this film. And I hope other people give this film a shot and give Sonny Chiba a shot from this more dramatic lens. 
Awesome, man. I, I couldn't have closed down any better myself. So being that I picked this one, do you have any thoughts for our next episode or a film you'd want to talk about? Well, do you want to stick with Japan? Do you want to go straight to video America or do you want to go back to Hong Kong? Let's, let's, let's try to jump from country to country. So, uh, anything outside of Japan. Do we, do we want, do we want to go straight to video America? Do we want to like go a little South, uh, South to down under? Do we want to go to, uh, I'm, I'm thinking there's some great Richard Norton pieces and we keep talking about them. Well, we keep, it's too soon. What, I might have a, a special something for, I think the movie we're thinking of. So let's, uh, I, uh, let's, I'm going to pick a country. At one, at one point we might have to talk about, you're going to pick a country. I don't know if you can oh, see the t-shirt. Yeah. We'll definitely have, he yeah, had the, the iron trainer t-shirt. So tell you what, uh, I'll let you decide, but we'll do a straight to video American one. We don't need to decide okay. right now. But it will be okay. one of those. That sounds good. I'll give you. I'll. Uh, I'll give you three three options to pick from. Sounds good. And they will. And they won't to... all be Jeff. And they won't all be Jeff Wincott. But I'm sure one will. Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyways, our smoke alarm's going off now because I just turned okay. on the, uh, the air fryer. But anyways, good episode. Good talking to you. Bye.